reading, not looking. Run by the School of European Languages and Cultures at UCL, where we try to sort of share our research in an informal environment with the public, with people from beyond the academy, people who aren't associated necessarily with the university. So, we're really excited to um, be having this event tonight on London, London through different eyes, thinking about um, cultural um, stereotypes of London, representations of London. Um, and you might have noticed we've got these kind of funny tablecloths on your tables with some pens. And these pens um, are for writing on the tablecloths, drawing on the tablecloths, responding to uh, what you hear uh, tonight or you know any kind of feedback on the event. So we'd really like to, we'll be coming and sitting with you and talking to you so we'll actually get a chance to chat to you. But it'd be also great if you could kind of decorate the tablecloths and they can be liberally Yes, I'm, thank, uh, welcome. I'm Roland Francois Lacan from the Department of French. Uh, this event is called London Through Different Eyes. And although we're, we're going to be talking at you a bit, coming and talking to you a, a little bit more, what we hope, I think, is one thing that you'll think about yourselves, about your own, the eyes you direct at the London that you live in, and you may, that may be a different London for you. My name is Roland Francois Lacan, and that's a different name in relation to what you might expect from London, but I'm London born and bred, my mother was French, and she gave me a French name. But even that little thing, which is not uh, about my coming here from outside, gives you, gave me, a slightly different perspective. Always, I've always been looking at London from a French perspective, from the perspective of my mother, who was, came over here from, uh, from the north of France, and from then other French people who have come here, and I've researched the French look at London in, in cinema. That's a different area. My competence here is really just to introduce my eminent colleagues who, um, <laughs> who have uh, a more direct competence to communicate to you. And I'm going to begin with my um, partner in the uh, French department, Isabelle uh, Moreau, my partner in the sense that we all work together, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're all partners. Until this evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Isabelle, who is... Genuinely French, French not fake <laughs> French like myself, is going to talk to you, I think, about something that she will tell you herself. <laughs> um, there is an issue about whether I introduce people in detail or allow them to introduce themselves in detail. Now, of course, people know their own details themselves better than I might ever. So she, Isabel, will tell you who she is and why she's here. Okay, that's a big thing. I'm here because of Wendy, who will be talking the last of our, our slot. Uh, I'm French, from the French department, but I'm just here to introduce broadly the theme and what it means to read travel writing, really. I'm a 17th century specialist. Don't worry, I, would, I won't speak about 17th century travel. It's just a little bit <laughs> toward the end of my paper to introduce what Emma Ponsford, who is my PhD student, will be presenting in a minute. But I'm just here giving you broad, key issues, stuff like that. I hope not too much like a teacher, but I can't bet on that, okay? Okay, 
Um, so, Wendy, who is here, will be talking in a minute about what is involved in reading foreign travel narratives on, of the place you come from, right? So, this kind of double vision, uh, looking through the travel's eyes, but also through you all, a bit like what Roland just said. I'll be starting here with three alternative assumptions about human subjectivity, which need to be questioned when you start looking at travel narratives. The first one is this idea that the traveler's capacity to see is somehow determined by the ideology of his social class, which is kind of true, but it's also very simplistic because there are elements of predefined power strategies, but they are combined with many other factors, right? That's the first assumption. The second one is this idea that travelers simply saw what was there to be seen and is clouded uh, by the prejudices uh, which more empirical or rational travelers or observers might have avoided. Here again, there is no privileged position, I'm afraid, from which an interpretation of what was there may be considered a challenge. And the third, I think equally wrong um, assumption about reading travel writing would be this, this extreme subjectivism. That, that this idea there is no translation possible and that the traveler would not be able to interpret what the culture is looking at is simply because his understanding would be would come would stem from his own culture. So I, can you speak up a bit? Because a bit low or okay. okay. The shouting is then. Is the mic or? Dans le micro. But it's not the, okay. the microphone. The microphone is just recording. It's just oh, recording. It no, can't amplify my voice. I'm no. I'll try to speak louder. Okay. So <laughs> I just wanted to emphasize the fact that the study of cultural encounters has emerged in recent years as a privileged field for rethinking questions about um, perception, human subjectivity, and ident identity. Identity nowadays. Um, suggests like autonomous individuals whose assessment of their selves is shaped by an identification with categories such as sex, gender, nation, race, whatever. But identity has a history and ways of conceiving the self have changed over time. Now, it, defining the self is a bit tricky. Um, defining the other is by no means simpler. And here again, it all depends on where you put the emphasis on. So here again, three points. I'm French, so you know I like three, three bullet points each time. The first one is if you put the emphasis on the notion of discovery or gaze, then you put at the forefront Western agency. And the, the, the key example would be um, all the narratives around Columbus' landfall on, on, on a Caribbean island in uh, 1492. If you put the emphasis on uh, the notion of appropriation and inversion, then you take on board this, this stream of information from the other way around. So again, you consider the gaze from them to us. That could be Wendy's perspective on the, on the problem, if it's a problem. And if you put the emphasis on the travelers himself, then you've got this idea that you learn as much about the traveler's own culture than about the foreign culture he's being portrayed. This last point 
stems from the idea that in the process of knowledge, you have to take into account the tradition in which the authors of descriptions have been educated, and second, the social strategies and political interests in which they were involved in the first place. So, and this beyond the mere statement that they were merchants, soldiers, missionaries, or tourists, simply. Okay. Um, so, you all have to think in terms of intellectual processes and interactions, something much more dialogical than what Edward Said does do in Orientalism. What I want to emphasize, and that, that what we will emphasize all over these uh, mini-lectures, is that the encounter is not one between an observer and his passive object, but rather than of interaction, really. And then we have to take seriously the challenge of cultural differences experienced abroad and re-evaluated in Europe. So there we are moving towards the, this ideal of connecting histories um, which postulates that distant and not so distant cultures can look at each other, can talk to each other, not perfectly maybe, but efficiently enough just to keep the dialogue and the conversation going. Okay, but when we, you start thinking about travel writing, you may have thought, oh, we will be speaking about exotic, faraway places and so on. But what about our immediate neighbor, the one familiar enemy, speaking as a French to the English? Okay? Okay, here I'm very much interested in the issues of cultural translation, but also mistranslations, right? Understanding, I think, the circulation of meaning on the global stage involves observing processes of deception, deliberate failures of communications, as well as true dialogues. And hence my interest in stereotypes and insults. Calling someone a roast beef, roast beef, <laughs> is a very strange insult, right? Calling someone a frog is quite weird, too. And the world is full of national and racial insults based on what people eat. This has been dubbed gastro-nationalism. <laughs> Good, eh? <laughs> Not simply racial difference, but those ever-absorbing bones of contention, that of manners and taste. And Emma will be talking in a minute about this aspect. Another example, much earlier, but because we are in a pub, I couldn't avoid it, it's the link between French dogs and drunkness. So I'll be call, um, quoting here Eustache Desson, 14th century, first in French, then in my own translation. French dog, dit un anglais, vous ne faites que boire vin. Si faisons bien, dit le français, mais vous buvez le hennequin. Which means, French dog, said an Englishman, you do nothing expect except drink wine. Quite true, said the Frenchman, and you, you just drink beer. So when, for instance, French traveller Samuel Sorbière reaches Dover in 1663 after 12 hours spent on a boat, he also mentions the same instant, French dogs, which greets Frenchmen crossing the channel. And although there is a long history of Anglo-French contact, although Calais and Dover in particular have been trading for centuries, well, Frenchmen are still seen by children as exotic monsters. And English commoners and children are not to be singled out for their rudeness because it seems that crossing borders 
generate its own level of anxiety and stress. And Sobier, this French traveler, was very aware of this, and he notes that French are also called midges, moucheron, by the Flemish, and daft, idiotic French, mato francese, by Italian commoners. I'm obviously mentioning borders intentionally, as stereotypes have also to be looked at partially. And here, um, I'm for instance, currently working on um, a project um, called uh, Moving, which is uh, it's just a pilot at this stage. But part of the challenge of this project will be to transform early modern resources into maps, interactive maps, right? And here I'm very much interested in means of transport because it's as interesting as the places you choose to visit. For instance, just think of yourself stuck in your small carriage, not speaking the language just for hours, this is exactly the first experience of Sorbier when he, comes, he goes to London. It's has been quite difficult, I would say. And obviously mapping the journey is important too, as it gives some insight on your expectations, where you go, and especially in London, what you choose to report back and how. But I think I've talked too much, and this is Emma Ponsford, uh, the second speaker. It's my job. Oh, sorry. It's <laughs> so, my job to say that this is Emma. <laughs> I shall say, this is Emma. Emma was already been introduced uh, by Isabel as her PhD student. Emma is also a colleague. She teaches in the French department at UCL. And she's going to talk to you about what she will tell you in a minute. She's going to talk to you about it because we are introducing ourselves. As I've been introduced by two of you, I am Isabel's PhD student. I work on 18th century French travel narratives on England. Um, now these are travel writings by travellers who are reporting back on their observations on England and a very interesting period in Anglo-French history. It's a period after the Glorious Revolution of 1688 when we see the English and Dutch join together with the crowns of William III. Um, and it's a period of increasing political enmity between the English and the French through a series of uh, wars and actually a period which has been dubbed the Second Hundred Years' War. I've placed on um, the tables, I'm afraid it's very school-esque, but some hand handouts, some visual, visual aids. Um, I just wanted to um, start by considering um, this idea of um, stereotypes and also uh, cultural differences. The, the, the first image um, is, just, is just a Google image. Um, and we see the sort of the awkwardness or is it the embarrassment of how you greet someone when you first meet them. Um, and indeed, perhaps this also uh, engenders a curiosity um, and such differences on first coming, this first encounter with someone from a different culture can also lead to stereotypes. And actually there's a direct parallel in the text that I work on, um, particularly um, a text by Voltaire, Letters on the English Nation. Um, they were pu first published in English, uh, then published in French, and in the first letter, Voltaire uh, relates his encounter with a Quaker. Uh, and he's very, um, very much taken aback that the Quaker doesn't bow and curtsy to him, rather stays upright and doesn't take his hat off, a great affront to a Frenchman. So we, these sorts of encounters can lead to stereotypes or perhaps unfounded images of this other. 
Um, and I think we can see that in this the second um, image, which is actually a, a postcard I picked up from the station in South Kensington, which interestingly is of course where a lot of French um, French people live, a lot of city financiers uh, commute in from um, that area. And here we see the English ridiculing themselves. Uh, you can't quite see in the image, but what they're trying to get at is the um, verbosity of um, if the English and the fact that the Englishman would only possibly respond to a call for help if he's addressed in a certain manner. Um, and I think the, the particular interest in this image here is that whereas with the Voltaire in this first image we see a continuation of a stereotype over hundreds of years, here we see very much a reversal from, say, 300 years ago. Um, Voltaire and other uh, travel writers remarked on the stiffness of the English, the lack of conversation, which was interpreted as particularly rude. Um, you had to uh, engender a certain type of conversation when you're in polite company. Um, and indeed, that this, this stereotype, or at least this um, portrayal of the English, has, has changed. So you get stereotypes or perhaps images through greetings or conversation. Um, and then, of course, there's this issue of um, food, as Isabel's already related to. Um, remarkable. Um, this this first sort of screenshot I think is quite interesting because now, whereas in the past it's been a, an insult to call the English um, the, the roast beef, but actually here we see the English appropriating the term um, and almost um, sort of ridiculing the, the, the origin of where this um, term has come from. But I suppose the point out of all of these images is, is it just satire or is there a, um, a greater message that's being um, portrayed through these images? So the next image I've got here is um, from uh, Gilray. Um, he was a caricaturist. Um, he made his uh, living through etchings at the end of the 18th century um, and into the 19th century, um, a period when the, the English and the French are at loggerheads once again after the French Revolution and also with the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and here we see this typical opposition between the French and the English. We see the Frenchman uh, dressed in the latest fashions, um, the Englishman in his more rustic dress, um, the, the rounded belly. Um, and his overflowing uh, cup of beer. And hanging behind them, you see on the right-hand side a, a quite a, a dainty joint, a, a poultry. And on the other side, you see this great hunk of um, beef behind the, English, uh, behind the Englishman. But of course, I think there is, there's always a, deep, there's always a deeper uh, message trying, that's trying to be portrayed behind these images. And indeed, also in, uh, in texts as well, um, and the, on, the on the next page, I've um, put the whole section of uh, Henry Fielding's um, poem on, the, on roast beef, which he wrote for um, the Grub Street Opera. I won't, I won't read it all out, but um, it's quite amusing if you read through. What he does is he, like Gilray did uh, earlier in his image, he opposes the French and the English. And indeed for him, French cuisine versus English cuisine isn't just two different types of food um, relating to what people like or what they're used to or perhaps what's best for them nutritionally, but rather it's emblematic or it's, it's a symbol for something else. And for Fielding and indeed for other both English and French writers in the period, um, the roast beef of England was um, indicative of courage and valour, whereas the French cookery, the more refined sauces, 
were indicative of nurturing a very weak and effeminate character. So to take a case study from my own, um, own work, the first text I uh, work on is by Huguenot Exile, so a French Protestant who was driven into exile from France following the wave of persecution of the French Protestants in France after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. Um, and this particular writer, um, Henri Misson, settled in England for 10 years. Uh, before publishing his memoirs and observations. They were first published in French and uh, 20 years later uh, an English translation appeared. And he's a particular, particularly interesting example of a travel writer because indeed he calls himself a traveller and yet he's a settler in England when he writes this. So there's, a, there's a, another question of identity was something that Isabel alluded to. Um, another interesting question that comes up in these travel writings, are you always the traveller, are you always the other when you settle in this other culture or not? Within Misson's account, uh, he does an alphabet, it's an encyclopedic approach. Uh, he starts with Angleterre, with England, then he goes on to um, Anglais, the Englishman, and then he goes through uh, different sites in London. So particularly he concentrates on London, for indeed in this period uh, travel is difficult, there are highwaymen, and there aren't many uh, roads, the turnpike system doesn't develop till later. So a lot of travellers come to London and they use this as their site for understanding Englishness and making very general assumptions about Englishness. Now the interesting thing about Misson is that within his account there are about a dozen or so entries in which he deals with food, which um, already even uh, at the end of the 17th century had also already become associated with these sort of national um, stereotypes. But Misson, rather than repeating um, or uh, bolstering these stereotypes, indeed, he tries to undermine. He tries to undermine them. So we come to the first uh, first example, and he speaks of fruit, um, and he says, "Well, the climate doesn't affect the quality of, um, of fruit." He makes this allusion to how we might understand character, and there had been this theory of climates in the 17th century, um, saying that uh, certain peoples in the north, because of their climate, associated with a certain car uh, character, and likewise people in the south. And he, but he finishes his um, example with just a, a very general comment that actually the fruit that these French refugees uh, taste in the London markets cannot really be commented on, because can we comment so generally on just a small sample? Indeed, he, he carries on. He doesn't just deal with the French prejudices of the English, but he deals with the other side as well, the English prejudices of the French, which he himself has experienced. Um, and the next example, he talks about herbs later on in, in his account. Um, and he says it's a, a notorious and undeniable, according to the English, the French live upon nothing but herbs. And indeed, he says this is <laughs> utterly ridiculous, and how could anyone possibly say this? Um, but this he understands as simply this, this prejudice, this social conditioning that we undergo um, and we take with us when we travel to another culture. And so he moves to speak of other parts of London, um, other, part, other sites he's visited, and we come to table, table at the uh, near the end of the account, and this 
is um, much longer than any of the other accounts of uh, food in the in the um, memoirs. And here he, he starts out with a typical stereotype, addresses it head on, just as we saw in the Gilray cartoon. And he says, the English eat a great deal of dinner. And he says how gluttonous they are with the numbers of meats that are brought to the table. Um, and then he goes on to, again, ridicule the English for this, this prejudice, this English pride in the English pudding, which he says is treated as if it's manna from heaven. <laughs> But then he comes to the end and he, he moves on from not just speaking about um, the different foods but also customs, just as we saw with the different greetings. And he says, well, the English belch at the table. And this is what's um, experienced by all foreigners. And it's, it's seen as actually um, very, very rude. But as he continues to, to say and what he actually ends his whole entry on um, cuisine, he says, well, what's the difference between spitting or blowing one's nose, which is just seen as equally culturally acceptable. So he's taking this step back and asking, can we really, how justified are our perceptions of this other? And indeed he comes, he comes on to reiterate this um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the account. And this, this final section that I put on the back is, comes from um, his uh, address of English theatre, which again was another site of understanding the differences between the English and French and caused a lot of controversy, especially with the introduction of Shakespeare in France by Voltaire in the 18th century. And he, this is where he comes to draw his um, conclusions. He says that we need to recognise that we, we are prejudiced and we should acknowledge that simply every man has particular tastes and ideas. And indeed he's ends up saying simply, each man to his own, and that's how we should understand it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Emma. Now, we're going to move on to Wendy. No. And, <laughs> yes, no, we've, we've, we've changed. We've changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we move with the times. <laughs> um, we're moving on to Wendy, Wendy Bracewell, who is from Cease. And, but that's not really her provenance. She's, I asked her how she wished to be introduced. She said, as a thrice outsider, <laughs> born in Australia, specifically Sydney apparently, raised in California, specifically Stanford, and currently living in Sheffield. Now I'll leave it for you to decide which of those is the, is the most exotic, but um, either way, she is not a Londoner. She has cast a stranger's eyes on our city <laughs> and will speak to you a little about how other strangers have cast their eyes on the city and perhaps the other way around as well, no? Maybe. 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 I, I think it's, it's useful for me to say that I'm a thrice outsider because I think that's why I'm interested in travel writing. I actually hate traveling. <laughs> you know, moving is not a good thing and I do, I do too much of it taking the train up and down between London and Sheffield. But I like reading travel writing. It makes me think about the questions of being inside and outside, of being different or not different. And a great deal of the writing about travel writing has been about how travel writing looks at and creates, not just observes, but creates a sense of difference. And I think you are here tonight at the very forefront, the cutting edge of studies in travel writing, because you've had a series of people talking to you about how actually we could read travel writing to tell us about other things than about difference. So this is, this is new. This is not something that has been very, done very much lately. What I'm doing with it is talking, is, in my own research, 
is looking at not so much about how people write when they travel, about how they write about difference or how they undermine ideas about difference. What I'm interested in looking at is how people read travel writing. What happens when you read a travel account? Can be quite hard to get at. When you, but you can, you can tell something about it just by reading travel accounts. What happens when you take a book in your hands and you go with a text that is written in the first person? I went there, I looked at this, I saw that. You're being asked to look through the travel writer's eyes. Yeah? You look over his shoulder or her shoulder. You know, you see through his or her eyes. So that's what armchair travel is like, yeah? When you, when you read a book and you do armchair travel, it is as though you are there. But what happens if you are not the assumed audience of the travel writer? Travel writers often say, we think. They write for an audience back home who they know. You know, who will take things for granted the same way that they do. But what if you are the person reading the travel account who is being described in the travel account at the same time? There's a bit of a problem there. It, it, for me, it's very much like um, the way that people have described the problem of the female nude, the painting. Yeah? If you look at a painting of a female nude, what is the gaze? that that picture usually assumes. It's a male gaze. You know, you're supposed to look at this beautiful woman lying there inviting you to look at it. But what if you're a woman in an art gallery? Yeah? Are you supposed to look at this luscious flesh laid out before you with desire? Or do you get this sort of strange double vision of a sense of being looked at yourself as you do the looking at? Yeah? It's the same with travel writing. If you're reading yourself being described and at the same time through some outsider's eyes, it's a little bit difficult. So that, that's currently what I'm doing. I'm looking at 18th century uh, readers who have been reading foreign travel accounts about their own societies and who say, this isn't quite right. And write back angry re replies addressed to the Republic of Letters. So they say, first of all, it isn't right. You have looked at us wrong. And at the same time, they're saying, but there's something there that actually is right. There's negotiating this problematic double vision by reading, reading foreign accounts. And you see them in the 18th century everywhere. You see them in Spain. You see them in Dalmatia. You see them in Scotland. Dr. Johnson goes traveling up to Scotland and says, the Scots are like this, absolutely appalling. All they eat is oats and they have no trees. Everybody, everybody knows Dr. Johnson's accounts of Scotland, but very few people know that loads of Scots wrote back and said, Dr. Johnson, I respectfully submit, is full of shit. <laughs> okay, so when you, read, when you read those replies, what does it tell you? What's interesting in these is not just what they say, but who doesn't reply. You know, as Emma has told you, there are dozens of Frenchmen writing about England, but there are very few replies polemical responses from the English. The English like to read travel accounts about themselves. You know, they love it. There's no problem about them being monoglot anglophones. You know, the English have paid to have 
translations done of all kinds of accounts of England. Um, you can get them. You can get them right from the 17th century, yeah, um, up through the 20th and the 21st century. Very famous ones, but they don't generally write back and say this is all wrong. The English are not like this at all, and we are offended. And that's an interesting question. Why should they not do so? One of the handouts on your table is um, is the preface from a book called How to Be an Alien by a Hungarian, George Mikesh. He wrote this book, in, published it in 1946. Uh, it's an extremely rude book about the English. He was a refugee from Hungary. He came here and he experienced life in London along with dozens of other Hungarians at the time. It's a single sheet. If you haven't got it, ask somebody to hand you one. Um, it's extremely rude. I have given you one chapter from it, which I will grab here to read. Uh, the chapter on sex. Continental people have sex. The English have hot water bottles. Okay. So he's, he goes through everything uh, in English life and treats it in exactly the same way. And his preface from the 26th impression of this book um, testifies to his disappointment about the way that the English read this. They read it, they chuckled, and they said, very amusing. <laughs> he says that there was one, he heard one reader who read it, snorted, threw it into the fire, and said, how impertinent. <laughs> that made him very happy. <laughs> but clearly that reaction has not been, that has not been very widespread. This book has been in continuous print since 1946. Hard to find something that is so popular. If you go into Waterstones and ask for it, you will find it very easily. So that in itself is an interesting question. You know, why, why, should people, why should people be so interested in reading rude remarks about themselves? And conversely, why should it have been a Hungarian who felt it so necessary to write a rude book about the English in 1946? If you think about the way that the English had written about Hungary as a strange, exotic, eastern land, you know, this guy is operating with a chip on his shoulder, which he deploys very ironically to tell us something about Hungarians and Hungarians' views of Englishness. So, to pull this all together, from my point of view, this evening is nothing but one big nefarious experiment, and you guys are the guinea pigs. It is not an experiment about what does it feel like to go back to school and be asked to listen to lectures and to analyze the handouts and to break up into small group discussions. Instead, it's an experiment about what does it mean to see your society dissected by an outsider? And how do you read that operation of dissecting? What does it mean to look at your own society through other people's eyes? Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it tell you something that you didn't know before? Or is it something that you can easily laugh off? And if so, why? Please, an answer on the, <laughs> on the tablecloth. <laughs> and you will go into my next book. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much, Wendy. Now we're going to pass on to our last entrepreneur, that's a French word, your actual French, um, which is, who is Vesna Goldsworthy. Um, she will be, she is a, a, a distinguished memorialist and also professor of creative writing. But she will be here to speak to you about 
I think exactly the kinds of things that Wendy has been pointing towards, the, the gaze directed and the gaze directed back. Um, um, Vesna, the word is yours. Thank you so much. I won't actually be speaking, I will be reading. Um, and I will be reading from a um, poetry collection uh, and from a memoir. You can ask quite rightly why poetry and why memoir in a session on travel writing, but somehow, and my audible difference may point to the reasons why, all my books end up in travel sections in bookshops, so uh, <laughs> whatever I write, mm. it's always in travel. And mm. most of the time when I, I've been a professor in English literature for about or various other titles, 20 years, and I still take a taxi to my university, and the taxi driver asks me, how long are you staying? So, uh, <laughs> and normally I say I'm thinking of going back next week. Um, <laughs> now, the first uh, piece I will read to you, uh, and I was really deciding this very much on the hoof, um, is a poem called West London Afternoon, and it is set in a restaurant absolutely unlike this one. So I shall shout the verse above your heads. A knife in your right hand, a fork in the left, a row of glasses, water, white wine, red, a crystal stockade ending with an unexpected flute, a starched desert of white linen, as far as the eye can see. Is this all? Is this all right? You tried the white wine. The world is in it. Eucalyptus, chocolate, damson, leather, licorice, plum, tobacco, truffle, musk. But the body? Is the body all right? The new exhibition at the Royal Academy. Did you see that man, Kapoor, made a mess, such a mess in the name of art. Was it wax, that blood-like substance? You wouldn't believe the cues. Yet all those unvisited spaces elsewhere, full of pictures. And that new booker, how can anyone stomach so much historic present? I promise myself to read only the Russians from now on. They never fail you. Hadn't someone noticed that already? The master of half-finished sentence, you are in control of words and movement. So au courant, so au fait, with the art of periphrases, with scripted hesitations, a bourgeois chamber pantomime. Cast adrift in your English small talk, Sometimes I hate you so intensely. I always need those five minutes more to decide, to decide what I want. Then I take myself aback with some ghastly Balkan story about a woman who suffered gangrene, no anesthetic, just wartime moonshine, perhaps some wine not half as good as this one. I go for it. I ruin our peaceful West London afternoon. Then I put the knife down calmly and watch you pay. 
while I tear the matchsticks out of their embossed booklet one by one and leave them lying there unlit, broken. So that was from the Angel of Salonica, which um, covers Europe in um, a range of poems. It was the Times Best Poetry Book for 2011. And I was thinking of reading something from my memoir that was set in a cemetery in Kensal Green, but I decided not to because I have the shout and cemetery passages are not quite right for shouting. So I will read a section that you have there on your handouts. Um, you have the handouts with the cover which shows me aged 24 and I'm reading for a, from a paperback where I have a picture of myself aged 3. So you see the <laughs> ages of women here. Okay. The next edition. Next edition <laughs> will be a baby one. A real baby, baby one. Okay. Um, this is about um, the chapter in the memoir soon after my wedding uh, and in the section that follows I talk about English prejudices about the Serbs and here I move on to the uh, 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 um, Serbian prejudice about the English. So you'll hear some repetitions but I think it's useful. Back in Belgrade however my forthcoming marriage and the distinct chance that I might soon be giving birth to little English people, with everything that implied, brought to the surface a veritable hodgepodge of ideas of Englishness, most of them mildly or not so mildly negative. Most Serbs I knew used the word English to mean British, so there was no letter for the Welsh or the Scots either. Thus, for example, the English were perfidious and treacherous. Winston Churchill supported the royalist resistance in 1941 only to dump the entire Serbian nation unceremoniously into the hands of the commies without a second thought. This reflected the fact that the English had never been our true friends but had always simply used us in whatever was the great par deal of the day. The English were, on the whole, ugly. For every British-born Cary Grant and every Vivian Lee, there were literally hundreds who looked downright weird. <laughs> Belgrade Television, with its endless repeats of programs such as The Benny Hill Show, Are You Being Served, and Heidi High, did not help. Neither did the fact that members of the royal family were somehow thought of as typically English. <laughs> the English were either arrogant cold aristocrats or boorish beer-drinking football hooligans. The latter, quote, needed the war badly to get the violence out of their system, according to my practical grandmother. England had, quite possibly, the worst climate in the world. The entire history of England could be viewed as a series of attempts to escape the weather. The English climate was likely to make me suicidal sooner or later. A neighbor turned up with a copy of Wuthering Heights in which she had highlighted some pertinent descriptions of rain for my delectation. English sex was an oxymoron. We were too polite to discuss this, but there were hints that English couples were supposed to sleep in separate bedrooms after the birth of their children. I will cut here because I don't want to be standing here forever. 
and turn to the next page. England had perhaps the strangest cuisine in the world. They were reputed to have developed a special jam for every kind of meat, and they smothered their lamb with mint and vinegar. This made Granny laugh, for Montenegrins are connoisseurs of fine lamb. The English did not know what to do with vegetables other than roots, as could be expected of northerners. And God only knows what their patisseries like, worried one aunt, while everyone tried hard to remember an English kind of cake. Reform torta, said a neighbor, <laughs> referring to a fine confection of praline and walnut sponge, but no one was convinced it was English. We imagined medieval bricks of dough which had to be soaked in milky tea. When Simon sat down to eat, Granny kept wondering whether any of the jars from the larder, plum, roast greengage, strawberry, melon, should be brought out to accompany his main course. In fact, anything Simon did, anytime, anywhere, was ex examined as an example of what the English do. He was not so much himself as a photo fit for different aspects of Englishness. On a Danube pleasure cruise, two people came up to me to inquire about my traveling companion. I knew from his shoes that he was English the moment I saw him, remarked a plump Yugoslav diplomat. Is it true that they're very cold? Asked a woman in a tight silk dress with a corsage of peonies, smiling broadly towards Simon in a vain attempt to obscure the line her inquiry was taking. He smiled back and muttered something about the lady's very fine pencil <laughs> moustache. I was perhaps for the millionth time in my life engaged in creative interpreting. Others patted his shoulder more benevolently, repeating Srpski Zet, Serbian son-in-law, as though he were somehow marrying the whole nation. In a sense, he was. Dada, Simon replied in an impressive show of Serbo-Croat fluency. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, at this point in the evening, um, I'm going to, first of all, read to you my favourite quote about London, so far this evening, from Dostoevsky, which is on a piece of publicity that you may have seen. The beer houses are decorated like palaces. This is palace-like. This is one of my favourite places of repast from my place of work across the road. But when I normally come here on a four o'clock in the afternoon, there's nobody else here but me and my colleague. So this is very strange to see all you here gathered in my, in my room. But they're very like that. Everyone is drunk. That happens eventually. But drunk joylessly. Everyone is in a hurry to drink himself into insensibility. That's Dostoevsky, commentary yeah. on London in 1862. Now, I am not going to encourage you to drink yourselves into insensibility. There, is, there are bottles on your tables which, when they are empty, will not be refilled. <laughs> so if you find that there are, the bottles are empty on your table, our kind hosts are welcome to serve, are happy to serve you with whatever you wish, but at the price that they require. Well, this is a moment where we will converse, chat. Some will, your speakers this evening will come and sit next to you and say, is that all right? And, uh, <laughs> and you'll say, yeah, that's fine. And for half an hour we'll do that. And then at the end, after half an hour, we'll have a little Q&A, see what you want to say about <coughs> what's been said and, and what's not been said. 
So if we can take just half an hour to do that, fill your glasses and carry on enjoying yourselves at home. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> cool.